Welcome to Day Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This is a podcast series I'm putting on so that authors are able to connect with the readers even though we're all self-quarantining and social distancing and keeping safe during COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please check out daybeautiful.net where you can access book recommendations, more author interviews, and links to every single podcast I'm doing on the Day Beautiful podcast feed. Today's guest has an MFA in fiction from the New School and is the co-curator of the Guerrilla Lit Reading Series in New York City. His debut book, How Fires End, came out in late 2019 and I finally had a chance to read it thanks to self-isolating. His name is Marco Raffala. Hey Marco, how you doing? Uh, I'm healthy and my partner is healthy and we're staying indoors and we're safe. And I think that's the best that we can ask for. Um, and we're limiting our time going out and getting things that we need. So, Yeah, and I definitely appreciate that. I, I've talked a lot in the past few weeks with authors about how my mother works at a grocery store in Pennsylvania. And uh-huh. it's just like I worry about her all the time, but then like I can't because uh, – it just will drive me You're crazy. Powerless. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. So I, my, I'm, my mother. Oh, go on. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just say I'm out in the West Coast, so yeah, there's you know nothing I can do right now from 2,000 miles away. Right, and my mother's in a nursing home, which uh, gives me no, you know, uh, just so much anxiety just thinking about you know that that's just one of the sort of the prime breeding grounds for people getting sick. So. I'm just like, all I can do is cross my fingers, you know, and hope that we all get through this. And then even though we're all going through these anxieties and this time period that I feel like no one ever has gone through in modern history, there are, you know, books and art that that really do help pass the time and ease the mind. Yes. And you have a book out. It came out late, late last year before anyone had ever even heard of COVID-19 or coronavirus. Um, Tell readers a little bit about it. Uh, So How Fires End is about a vendetta and a curse that follow two families through the generations from a Sicilian village in the Second World War to an Italian-American community in Connecticut in the 1980s. And it's inspired by family history and the local folklore of Malili, Sicily. And that's the village where my father grew up. And what would you be reading for us today? Uh, So the novel is told from multiple perspectives. Um, I'm going to start at the beginning with the prologue. um, And it's it's a fairly short piece. Terrific. All right, take it away. I had three brothers, she began. But now... Nella took a deep breath, held it in, let it out slow. Now I am the last Masalo. After me, there will be no more. But our families, yours and mine, they were there in the beginning with the statue. She paused to sip her hot cocoa. The boy watched her hungry for more. He didn't move, not even to brush the curls of unkempt dark hair from his eyes. Her face wrinkled into a smile, and she set the cup down, still holding it with both hands. She continued, not stopping until the cup had long grown cold. 
My father told my brothers and me the story of how the statue of St. Sebastian came to the village of Malili, the village we once called home. Like so many stories, this one started with danger. A ship was caught in a furious storm and ran aground in Magara Bay. The hull cracked open on the rocks and the waves pushed our saint ashore. All the sailors survived. They thanked their cargo for their lives, but none of these men could lift the statue to carry it off. Word spread first among the shepherds, then to the local villages and cities, until news reached the bishop of Siracusa. In three days he came with clergy and a crew of men to claim the saint. Again, the saint was too heavy to lift. From all over the province, people gathered on the beach, waiting their turn to try to break the spell and lift the statue. Some of the men built a fire. Some of the women cooked. At night they prayed, and in the day their prayers failed them. When the procession from Malili arrived, our priest claimed the statue, saying, since the making of the world, St. Sebastian has been painted here on the grotto wall in our village, here before even Sebastian himself was born. This is Malili, the martyr Sebastian, tied to a tree and porcupined with Roman arrows. Then our men raised the statue on a wooden pallet and placed the poles upon their shoulders, and a great cheer went up among them as all the clergy prayed and made the sign of the cross. They shouted, He is one of our own. First God, and then St. Sebastian. Another cheer seized the men, and they carried the saint home. Our ancestors of Vasallo and a Morello among the bearers. Our families held hands and sang together, bringing their patron saint home to Malili. In the piazza, on the ridge overlooking the bay, their knees buckled. The men cried out. A force had suddenly burdened them with a weight they could no longer carry. The priest kissed the wooden crucifix around his neck and said, no man can shoulder the might of God. So they left the statue there and built a church around it. This was May 1414. As children, my brothers and I loved that story. As children, we believed, as everyone believed in those days, that St. Sebastian would protect the people of Malili forever. When earthquakes destroyed much of our village, it was by his glory our families lived to marvel, the statue unharmed among the ruins. Etna erupted. We prayed to him and our homes were spared. He saw us through all the wars and years of unrest and revolt in our history. St. Sebastian always keeps us safe. He will always keep us safe. My father said these words as we hid in the cave, the war raging just outside. Gunfire cracked the air. Bombs whistled as they fell from the sky. Beneath our feet, the ground trembled. The cave shook like it might come down on top of us any minute. In the back, our mother prayed her rosary before the ancient painting of the saint on the cave wall. She wanted me, her only daughter by her side, but I wanted to work with my father and brothers. 
we hauled a bushel basket of almonds, the only food left to eat. All around us, Germans and allies fought. Such noise as you would never imagine possible. And before I jump into talking about the book, first of all, thank you for reading that. That was hearing authors read is such a treat, and I I, I honestly miss it. And I didn't realize until I started asking authors to talk on the phone to me and read to me. Thank uh, you so much. Yes. Um, before I get into the book, I want to talk about your background. You're a first generation Sicilian American, and you grew up in Connecticut, right? Yes, that's true. What was the like the literary or the storytelling community like within your family and your your close community growing up? Um, it wasn't so much as a literary community as it was an oral storytelling tradition. Um, so my father grew up in Sicily. He was a boy during the war. Uh, he came to the United States when he was. 29 years old, um, and he, I was born when he was in his early to mid-30s, um, and he never read a book to me, but he was always telling me stories, um, whether they were uh, fantastical stories, like the, the story about how the statue came to Melilli, uh, or stories that are steeped in Greek and Roman mythology, which is, those are his sort of, his favorite um, stories were Greek and Roman mythology, or uh, what happened to him during the war, what he saw as a child. Um, and he was deeply traumatized by those events. And, um, and because he was also steeped in this culture of uh, machismo, um, he never sought help for that trauma that he held in him. Um, but for whatever reason, he uh, on and on. He, he just told me about these horrific things that he saw that he witnessed as a child. And I was kind of like his therapist. Like I would listen, you know, we'd be out in the garden and he would just tell me about these, uh, about the war. And, and I would just sit there and soak it in. When did you first start telling stories either orally or writing them down somewhere? Um, probably in I'm going to bring my sort of nerd credentials out a little bit, but um, I think it started uh, as a teenager playing Dungeons and Dragons, which is in 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 my you know in my view it's a a collaborative storytelling experience. You're sitting around a table with a bunch of people and you're creating this world and this narrative. So I think that was that was my my first steps into uh, playing around with narrative and uh, characters. Um, And then I moved, and then I moved into music, and and um, I played guitar and mandolin in various bands for a while in the '90s. So um, that's another kind of storytelling in a way. Um, I didn't start writing this book until my father and I took a trip to Sicily together. Yeah, I want to talk about that. This book is obviously steeped in history, and like you mentioned, your father told you about the statue in the church. What was the catalyst that started How Fires End? Like at, uh, during that trip, I mean, during that trip. Right. So, like I said, my you know my my father was 
deeply traumatized by by the events of the war as a child. And and, and the war for them, people in Melilla, it wasn't something that ha- was happening somewhere else. It was the Allies invaded Sicily, and the Germans happened to be occupying their village. And so, of course, the army swept right through to push the Germans out. They were bombed by the Allies, and then, you know, from the air and from the sea, and then. When Italy switched sides and the Allies were occupying the village, the Germans bought them. So they were getting it from both sides. And um, some of the stories he told me were horrific things that children should never see. Um, and so that made him a very hard man, a very difficult man to live with, uh, certainly a very difficult man to have as a father. Um, and as his child, uh, I inherited a lot of those traumas. We know that that's something that that happens. Um, children of people who experience traumas, like you know, uh, children of Holocaust survivors or uh, children whose parents you know lived in in conflict zones, they inherit these traumas from their parents. Um, so that's a, a long-winded way of saying we had a very difficult relationship. Uh, and there was just at one point, my sort of my lowest point. Uh, I was no longer in a band. I was, you know, I had spent many years having this creative life, not making any money, but having this sort of wonderful, freeing, creative life, and, and that ended. And I was working in an office in a gray cubicle, and I was depressed and miserable and hated it. And um, and I'd also lost a friend, and so he just sort of reached out and said, "I'm I'm going I'm going to Sicily, and I think you should come with me." And at first, I told him no. Because I just did not want to spend, you know, like eight hours in a plane with him. Um, and then my mother called me and she said, why, why would you say no? This is an olive branch. Take it. And, you know, mothers being, um, having that special sense and, and being wiser than all of us, um, she knew that. And so I, I said yes. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that she gave me that kick in the pants. Um, so when we went to Sicily together, um, all of a sudden his life, I no longer saw him as my father and as someone that I had arguments with and a contentious relationship with. Um, I saw him as a human being. Um, and I saw, you know, he showed me the, the cave where they hid in um, when, uh, when the war reached their village, you know, um, I saw the statue of St. Sebastian. I saw um, the graves of these, his two young cousins who he witnessed die in an explosion. Um, And so all of those things, it just made, um, it it made all of the seeds that he had planted my whole life all of a sudden start bearing fruit. Uh, Sounds like a, just a a trip of a lifetime that, wow, I, that just sounds like a really beautiful trip. Um, and then uh, upon your return from, from that experience with your father, is that when you sat down and sincerely started writing what became Half Fire's End? Yes. Yeah. I started, you know, some character sketches and, and what some, what I thought were some short stories, um, about these characters that I realized had always been in my head. Um, and I was only just now starting to listen to. And I um, I went to the Wesleyan Summers Writers Workshop at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Um, 
and I met Alexander Chi there and uh, was lucky enough to get like office hours with him. And yeah, and I absolutely adore Edinburgh. Um, and, you know, he looked at my awful pages and um, told me, you know, these aren't short stories. You're actually finding your way through a novel and it's going to take you quite a while. So sorry. I'm sorry to tell you that, but, you know, you're in it for the long haul. And if you're serious, you know, um, I would, you know, I, I, I would help you. So he became like a, I became his student for a while, um, mm -hmm. which was, um, and it took like 10 years to write. Wow. And the book itself, it covers a lot of time and a lot of space. It goes from Sicily to Connecticut. Um, how did you mentioned that you thought you were writing a lot of short stories Were all these pieces kind of in place from the beginning. And then Alexander's advice was to put it all together. Was America always part of these stories? No. Um, there was one story with, um, that was set in, in Middletown, Connecticut, but the majority of them were in Sicily during the war. Uh, the very first thing that I wrote is, is when I started actually saying, okay, these aren't stories, this is a novel. The very first scene that I put at the beginning of that novel is now like in the, I guess the third of the way through the book, or I think in the middle of the book. Um, and that's where the ca character of Salvatore witnesses his two brothers playing with an unexploded mortar shell in 1943. And he tries to stop them and he's too late and the, it goes off and they are killed. Um, so that was the first thing that I wrote. And I, I kept writing in, and it's in first person. And I kept writing from his perspective until I got to a point where I, I got to the limits of what either he knew or what he was comfortable talking about. Uh, so then I started writing from the perspective of his son in the United States. Uh, and then again, I got to this, I hit that, that wall again, that limit of knowledge. Um, and so that's when I realized I had this more complicated structure on my hands of uh, multiple first person narrators, a stereoscopic narrative. Um, and that's, that took a that was challenging, and it took a long time for me to figure out the the order of those voices and the structure of the book. But Alexander Chi definitely helped me um, understand that that that's what was happening, and um, trusting you know trusting the process that 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 the order will will make sense. Mm -hmm. One thing I loved about the book was how like just steeped in history and family it was. It reminded me a lot of um, Juliet Graham's The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, which is also takes place in Sicily and Connecticut and about a Sicilian family's history. Um, have you, are you, did you read that book by any chance? I love that book. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess I was very unfamiliar with the Sicilian community in Connecticut, there, there must be a, a strong one then. There is. So um, her family is actually from Calabria, which is in the south of the oh, mainland of mm -hmm. Italy. And uh, so she grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and I grew up in Middletown, Connecticut. They're not that, I think they're like maybe a half hour, 40 minutes away from each other. But in Middletown, um, all of the Italian Americans that live in Middletown can trace their families to this one village in Sicily, Malili. 
So it's very interesting. So at one point, you know, someone from Malili came over, discovered Middletown, and then went back and told all of his friends and all of his family and his cousins. And they just, everyone, everyone from Malili, if they were going to go to the United States, they were going to go to Middletown, Connecticut. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's just a part of history. There's just so much about America that's unknown to me. And it's always, it was just a treat to discover that through these two books that are, I, I, I confuse the areas, but similar, but still completely different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the south of Italy, I mean, you know, Sicily is part of the south. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah my, 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 my father always warned me about, you know, Calabrians, <laughs> <laughs> which I told when I got, had the, the fortune of meeting um, Juliet, I told her about that and she laughed and said that her <laughs> father warned her about Sicilians. So it's very funny. Uh, wow. And then I, I, I do want to transition briefly. Um, I discovered when I was like just reading up about you that you do game writing and you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find this fascinating because I've never played Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop games, but I've been looking to get into it. How did you get into, I mean, writing for these, these types of games? Um, it was by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had only started getting back into it again, uh, in the early two thousands, um, probably after I saw the Lord of the Rings movies and I remembered what it was like being a kid and loving Tolkien, um, and you know, fantasy games. Um, and I had heard about this game that, um, was based on The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and so I bought it. It's called The One Ring role-playing game. Uh, it's not out of, unfortunately, it's out of print now. Um, and I found some friends who wanted to play, so we started playing it, and then I just got on message boards, forums that were devoted to that game, and ended up interacting with um, other, uh, not just the writers and the creators of the game, but other fans of the game, and Eventually, eventually just like fell into helping uh, a writer uh, work on uh, a pitch for uh, an adventure for them. And then after we wrote that together, I started getting my own work uh, for the One Ring. And then I branched out to doing other games like uh, the game licensed from the Star Trek property. And I worked on an Italian English translation of an Italian uh, game that's coming out called Lex Arcana. I, I find that so fascinating because um, I used to live in Phoenix and I was speaking with Matt Bell, who was a professor at Arizona State, and he told me he wrote Dungeon and Dragon, I think I'm getting this right, Dungeon and Dragon books, not the ones for role playing, but the actual like fiction. And I just. Yeah, they have novels yes. based on it, yeah. And I just find it. I, I find it uh, like refreshing that there's these different paths of creativity we can take and it doesn't have to be, you know, a traditional novel. You can do Absolutely. these other things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find that if I'm, whether I'm, if I'm working on um, something for a game or if I'm playing a game with friends, it's, it, you're using different creative muscles, especially when it's collaborative. Uh, and it's it's really it really loosens you up and it like especially if you're you're stuck on something you've been working on in your fiction and and it's kind of a cl- a palate cleanser and you come back to it with this sort of open fresh perspective it's very helpful for me 
are are these types of games things you still you still play and explore with? I do. Yeah, yeah. I have um, a core group of friends that I get together with now. Of course, we're not getting together, mm-hmm. but um... what are what are? I mean, I, so I'm. This is this might sound very dumb. I only know Dungeons and Dragons really, and then the the ones you mentioned. What are ones that you're that that you're playing now? Um, so I haven't played it in a while because I, uh, yeah, you know, the book tour and had consumed my time. Yeah, um, but it was mainly it was the One Ring. Mm-hmm. Um, I I ended up playing a lot of the games that I worked on just so that I could understand the games as I was working on them. Um, the Star Trek Star Trek Adventures game. Um, and and I've done some um, some Dungeons and Dragons. I've gotten you know back into that. Um, but I mean that's the most famous one. But there is Pendragon, which is my my one of my all time favorite games. is is called King Arthur Pendragon, and and um, I had that when I was a kid, and um, I think it's in its like fifth edition now. But uh, it's that's a that was a game that sort of broke the mold because it. Um, it was gener- It was meant to be generational. Like your character was meant to either die or get old and retire as a knight in King Arthur's court, and um, and have children who would then pick up the mantle and, and continue on through the entire epic story of you know the the life and death of Arthur. Um, like the, the mechanics, the mechanics of the of the game in how it. Um, creates that how it creates that generational aspect was really fascinating to me as a kid and it still is now I love games that do that yeah that's definitely something I'm going to have to check out once all this is over I want to start getting out there and meeting new people and that collaborative storytelling is something I'm very seeking right now in life I love it it's it's wonderful and then um, I like to wrap up um, with you recommended some great games and collaborative storytelling, but what are some books that you have been reading or are looking forward to read in the the near future? Um, so you had mentioned uh, Juliet Grams, and, and I, I I read her book um, last year, and I recently reread it again, and I, I really can't recommend it enough. Um, and I want to use her own words to describe it because I think that it really touched on why I love it so much. Um, she said in an interview that she, uh, the reason that she wanted to write this book in the first place was to acknowledge the traumas of our foremothers, which are so often buried in order to protect the legacies of our forefathers. And, and after I had read her novel, even the, the first time, I, I saw that while I was busy you know, trying to chip away at these notions of machismo and Italian American culture, she just took a sledgehammer and knocked it down. And it's such an important book, I think, especially for Italian American men to read and then turn to the women in their lives and, and try to be better. That's uh, yeah. When I, I interviewed her just via email and um, so I didn't get a chance to talk to her voice to voice, but she just has so many wise things to say about that book. And I feel like more people should read it as quickly as possible. I agree. And I think the paperback is coming out um, in April. I think. Oh, perfect! Even so, a chance. so 
Exactly. People can look forward to um, the paperback of the seven or eight deaths of Stella Fortuna in, I think, April or maybe May. Not sure. Soon, though. Is there anything that other than her book that you read recently that you also loved? The Color Inside a Melon by John Dominey. Um, this is another one that I've read and, and then reread while I've been uh, self-isolating. And um, it's um, it's about uh, African immigrants and um, the hardships of immigration in Naples, Italy, in modern day Naples, Italy. Um, wrapped up in like a noirish murder mystery and the prose is just wonderful uh and the character of risto is fantastic a big thank you to marco raffala for talking to us today and recommending those books you can find him on the web at marco and on twitter it's just his first and last name marco raffala check out day beautiful at daybeautiful.net all of the social medias at day beautiful I have a lot more digital book tours coming up with a lot of nonfiction, which I'm excited about because I rarely read nonfiction nowadays because I like to escape into fiction. But now I need to know what's happening in the world. Until next time, see you soon. Bye. (laughs) 